welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 89, climbing steadily towards episode 100. I think I keep mentioning that because I don't know why, but uh, I'm not sure anybody else cares. But uh, 100 episodes is considered kind of a significant podcast milestone, and I'm, I'm very happy about the growth of this show. We weren't sure what it would become when we first started doing Counterpunch Radio, and here we are like... Uh, Geez, almost almost a year and a half or two years later, almost, and uh, you know, approaching episode 100. I feel good about it. I'm very grateful to those of you regular listeners who are uh, sharing this, who are giving the positive reviews on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on the various other platforms, and spreading the word. I think that that's uh, obviously very important and very appreciated. And similarly for Counterpunch, I think. Look, I mean. We have major political developments, dare, dare I say monumental political developments just in the last six months, both for, for the, uh, for the worse mostly, but some maybe potentially for the better that we might talk about today. Uh, and I think that we always look to counterpunch, uh, as sort of that outpost, as that place that we can rely on to give us the kind of analysis we're looking for in these times. And so if you agree on the value and importance of counterpunch, Please do consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine. It's uh, it's an awesome magazine. I love getting. I was just thumbing through it literally like an hour ago, going through like three or four of the last issues. Uh, the artwork is always great. The columns and always very very good uh, guest contributions, contributors, people like. Oh, I don't know. Yours truly. And also, oh, I don't know. This week's guest who I'm about to introduce. If you appreciate print magazine and print media, consider becoming a subscriber or just uh, donating to Counterpunch. Use the PayPal feature on the website. Give Becky a call out there in on the Lost Coast in California. Uh, you know, harass Josh and Jeff on Twitter. That's fun. I like to do that sometimes. Uh, let's see. Anyway, whatever you can do to support Counterpunch, greatly appreciated. So let me turn to my guest this week. I'm very happy to welcome him on the show. I believe it's the first time, although I've chatted with him a number of times before this, somebody whose political analysis I respect tremendously, somebody who is a very uh, uh, vocal and powerful and forceful voice for social justice, but also for a truly anti-imperialist political analysis, which is something I, of course, very much appreciate. It is Dan Glazebrook. He's a political writer based in the UK. He's a regular contributor to Counterpunch, and he's also the author of one of the feature articles in the current issue of Counterpunch magazine entitled 21st Century Fascism. Dan Glazebrook, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much for inviting me. So I, I'm very happy to have you on the show because we have so much to talk about. And I was going to really kind of give just a little bit of lip service to the uh, to the elections in the UK uh, as I was planning out this conversation, thinking, ah, eh, we'll just mention it, talk a little bit about why the Tory majority is so important and what this means for the future. And here we are, uh, you mm -hmm. know, right, you know, what is it, June 11th, Sunday, June 11th, and we've had a pretty significant development in the UK. Why don't mm -hmm. you tell us what's happened and why? Why it's important well yeah absolutely i mean people including myself i have to admit we're expecting a a big tory uh victory that's the conservative uk conservative party who've been in power um firstly as part of a coalition and then on their own since 2010 here in britain and uh the initial when the election was called six weeks ago the opinion polls were showing the uh conservatives have uh, polling twice as high as labor the predictions of, of of labor getting completely smashed um, 
and uh, of a huge uh, thumping Tory majority of people were predicting maybe a 150-seat majority just out of a total of 650. So, uh, and, and, and actually the result was they, they lost the little slender majority they had before the election, total humiliation for Theresa May, who called this election completely unnecessarily, it was totally gratuitous. Uh, we last had an election in 2015. There wasn't another one due until 2020. She managed to persuade two-thirds of parliament to override the fixed-term parliaments act that, that, that said elections should be fixed every five years. Uh, and they duly did that. And um, and so there was no need to call this election. She only did it. Um, well, there's a number of reasons people think she, she did it. But the most popular uh, reason people think is that because her party was doing well in the opinion polls, they suggested that if she had an election at that point, that Labour would get smashed and she'd get a huge majority. And the opposite happened. She lost the majority. She had this. Now they're not going to have to govern as a as a minority government, which means they'll need to persuade people from some of the other parties for every single piece of legislation they want to pass uh, to support it. So this is, is really um, a disaster, really, for Theresa May and for the Conservatives and for the package of extreme uh, austerity measures, uh, extreme ramping up of global aggression and so on, that they'd hoped their majority would allow them to uh, simply push through uh, with ease. So uh, certainly a, a, a lot to celebrate there that this that hasn't gone um, the way that, that, that a lot of people are, um, were expecting. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I think that this is an important issue to bring up because while this may not have been an absolutely necessary election uh you know for the conservatives of course now in retrospect it looks like a tremendous blunder but tell us a little bit about some of the reasoning behind theresa may and the conservative party's decision to do this how is this related to brexit and the upcoming brexit negotiations and uh what role does the far right and and the far right of the conservative party play in having led Theresa May into this blunder? Well, if you're asking about the reasons uh, for holding the election, of course, so like I said, the, the most popular analysis was, was, well, she thought she'd get a big majority, um, because that's what the opinion polls seem to be saying. Um, her, her, her reasoning, her, her um, reasoning to, to the public was that this was necessary, it was necessary to have a big majority, big mandate for her to deliver Brexit. Um, this would give her added negotiating muscle when she's dealing with the EU. There was a whole presentation um, throughout this whole campaign uh, that the EU was, um, you know, vindictive out to smash uh, the UK and so on. No smoke without fire, not completely without uh, w w without truth, but obviously a lot of um, a lot of scaremongering, fearmongering about the, about the EU, which was just presented as this sort of big big bad foreign other, um, you know, that's uh, the, out to out to squeeze and destroy poor old blighty um so there was the, there was all of this uh fear-mongering about the eu going on and the whole that her argument was you needed a huge majority to give her the mandate to, 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 to muscle to negotiate a good deal what's really interesting in the last few days is the conservatives now complete basically in complete denial that they ever said that because they're now being asked uh on the various tv programs and so on they're being asked well surely this uh, having lost your majority, that's now going to put you in a weaker position to negotiate Brexit. And they're, they're of course, saying, oh, no, no, not not at all. Um, basically admitting that their whole campaign was based on a lie, that the size of your majority somehow gives you greater negotiating muscle. I, I don't think it does at all, um, to be honest. Um, I think the uh, the negotiating muscle that you have it depends on your 
economic, geopolitical, um, diplomatic uh, wherewithal, really. Um, not the size of your uh, 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 majority back home. Nevertheless, the total disarray of the Conservative Party right now um, will actually be uh, will, will, will weak the British state's hand, I think, in the go- negotiations, which, which is a good thing, to be, to be quite honest. Well, let's, can can I want to just probe a little bit deeper about the political implications of uh, what's happened? Because in the last number of years, we had seen a sort of a a move, at least from the far right, away from the Tory Conservative Party and towards parties like the UK Independence Party, as the Brexit yeah. issue had really become such a central issue, particularly on the far mm-hmm. right. And so now that we've seen this campaign, do we see a, a you know a realignment or a re-realignment or sort of a a compensation back to what we had before that migration towards UKIP? Because from what I'm reading, UKIP, that is the UK Independence Party, the far-right political party, is not only in disarray, but potentially now a collapsed and defunct party. Uh, We now see Labour as resurgent. What does this mean for the other parties on the left end of the spectrum, for the social democratic style parties and so forth? So talk a little bit about the sort of the tectonic shift or if there is a tectonic shift within British politics vis-a-vis this election. Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting, specifically on the issue of UKIP. UKIP polled nearly 4 million votes uh, two years ago in 2015. Um, That was about, I think it was was just under 15% of the vote. And now that uh, that vote, I don't know the exact proportion, but it's basically been split now um, between uh, Labour and the Conservatives. UKIP were nearly wiped out. I think they went down from just nearly 15% to 1% or 2% or something of the vote. Um, and what's interesting is, so the, Theresa May was hoping, because there were 25 Labour seats, um, uh, which actually the combined Conservative and UKIP vote was higher than the Labour vote in 2015. So she was hoping she could mop up all those UKIPers uh, and take all of those seats off Labour. Actually, actually, that didn't happen. I think she got maybe five of those. The other 20... Um, remained with Labour and, and Labour actually increased their overall number of seats by, I think, 31 in the end. So that was, so, but what that shows, interestingly, is a lot of those UKIP voters went to Labour. And that's not entirely surprising for two reasons. One, a lot of the UKIP vote came from Labour in the first place. Um, uh, there is a, a large working class constituency amongst the UKIP uh, support base. Um, and secondly, because um, Jeremy Corbyn did uh, throw his support behind Brexit as soon as the uh, vote had taken place. He was a he was, he was a Remainer in the in the campaign, um, but he uh, supported Brexit and and actually was criticised by a lot of Remainers for not even making any demands before giving his 100% support to Theresa May's um, Brexit bill to trigger Article 50 and actually begin the formal process of leaving the EU. The House of Lords did more in the way of actually trying to get some kind of uh, uh, some something out of it, which was they specifically asked for guarantees to be given to those three million EU nationals living and working in the UK that they would be given the right to stay, um, and they asked that Parliament be guaranteed a vote on the final deal between Britain uh, and the UK. Um, in the end, they they they, they withdrew, withdrew withdrew those amendments, but Corbyn put forward nothing like that. Um, he just gave total out, all, all out support to. Um, to Theresa May's Brexit plans effectively. Um, and what's really interesting in this election is that that obviously helped him to win back those UKIP votes. 
But what's also what's particularly interesting, it seemed to have done so without damaging his support amongst Remainers at all. Um, so in fact, it's, it's it's really interesting. Corbyn, uh, in the latter days, when it seemed he was polling well, the, the the media went all out for calling him, you know, a dangerous terrorist and so on. But in the early days, the caricature of him in the in the mainstream media and by the conservatives was, oh, he's oh, sure he's a nice guy, but he's strategically he's useless, right? This was the kind of caricature. Actually, strategically, I have to say, he's been very, very canny because he's supported Brexit. He's won over all of those Brexit supporters, as I say, without losing, it seems like, a single Remainer. Um, and at the same time, he's done the same thing in terms of uh, UK foreign policy. Now, he's known as someone who was, uh, for, for many years, for decades, uh, vice chairman, I think, of CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, campaigned passionately for unilateral nuclear disarmament. Uh, he's been an anti-war campaigner all his political career. He's one of only 13 MPs to vote against the war in Libya, for example. Um, but in the manifesto, it's committed to Britain maintaining, uh, remaining in NATO. It's committed to maintaining 2% uh, GDP on defense. It's committed to not only maintaining nuclear weapons, but renewing the Trident nuclear weapon system. Clearly, Corbyn and his people have decided to choose their battleground their battleground was going to be austerity and domestic policies. And that they were going to pick their battles and that was going to be it. And on foreign policy, they were not really going to attempt to change the kind of Blairite pro-NATO, pro-intervention foreign policy. He gave his MPs a free vote, for example, on uh, on bombing Syria, and most of them voted in favor of bombing Syria, uh, whilst actually giving them a three-line whip, demanding that they support Theresa May's Brexit bill. And yet at the same time, so again, he's, he's, he's actually managed to win over some of the uh, more kind of militaristic, I suppose, inclined, you know, pro-nuclear um, kind of uh, former Labour supporters and, and people without, it seems, losing any of his old CND anti-war supporters. So, you know, strategically very clever. And that's part, a big part of the story of how he got such a high vote. It was only 2% behind the Conservatives in the end. Labour got 40%, their third highest uh, in the history of the Labour Party. Um, the Conservatives getting 42%. But of course, this, this, this balancing act of, of, you know, bringing together Remainers and Brexiteers, militarists and anti-militarists, that's going to be hard to sustain if he was ever actually in government. So, um, but yeah, but I just wanted to draw, draw attention to, to that fact that he's got this, this vote despite being, uh, known as, a, as, as, as anti-war, anti-nuclear. <laughs> Um, pro-refugee and so on. He's managed to get a lot of the former uh, UKIP supporters um, and he's got to where he is now on the back of some of those votes. Well, that's that's one of my uh, questions here is that I understand that Corbyn was able to kind of bring back into the labor fold some of the uh, working class votes, um, you know, that, that may have been lost to UKIP or may have been lost mm-hmm. to any any number of other parties uh, further to the right that had been uh, vociferously supporting Brexit. At the same mm-hmm. time, the question remains to what extent did Corbyn alienate a lot of immigrant voters who may have supported him, but didn't feel like he represented them in pushing back against Brexit? So, and I mean, this is a legitimate question, and I'm not sure that you would necessarily have an answer to this, but there is a demographic question here. Did Corbyn secure more support by being pro-Brexit from the left than he would have having taken a militantly anti-Brexit pro-immigrant position? 
Well, I suspect he. I suspect he did because, as I say, he doesn't seem to have alienated. Um, well, I said he doesn't seem to have alienated pro-Remain people, but he doesn't seem to have uh, alienated, you know, pro-immigrant, pro-refugee, and actual immigrant communities themselves either. And that's that's largely because, you know, what was the alternative? The alternative was Theresa May, right? Um, and and the conservatives who are who are, you know, overtly uh, anti anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, virulently so, um, uh, <clears throat> to the extent that it was Theresa May and her Chancellor Philip Hammond within the British camp cabinet, this is before they were Prime Minister and Chancellor back in 2014, it was these two who led uh, the push um, for the British government to take a stand against the Italian Navy's search and rescue program, uh, Mare Nostrum, uh, which had been very successful at rescuing people uh, refugees from drowning in the Mediterranean. Britain led the campaign within the EU to, to pressure them to close it down, to, to, to pressure other EU nations not to support that, and actually pressure the Italians to close it down. As Theresa May, personally, who was who was uh, behind that that policy, a, a policy, by the way, of, of saying we shouldn't rescue these people and just leave them to drown, that was first publicly advocated, as far as I'm aware, about 10 years ago by the British National Party, which is the main overtly fascist party in the UK. At the time, they were ridiculed for that. Uh, and now we have a prime minister who's actually managed to turn that into EU policy. Uh, so, so that, you know, and since then, as a result, 10,000 refugees uh, and migrants have drowned in the Mediterranean um, because they're no longer being being rescued. What rescues there are, there are uh, some small rescue operations just within a few miles of the Italian coast and Greek coast by their navies. Uh, and then there are a few uh, humanitarian charities that do rescue work, but they're nothing on the scale of what they used to be uh, the Mediterranean-wide Italian operation. Uh, that was closed down under pressure from Theresa May. So this shows you her attitude to refugees. Is, is no, you know, we, if we if we destroy Libya and make it an unlivable place, and you want to flee, then we're going to just and make sure you drown on the way over. This is her attitude right. to refugees and immigrants. So. Um, so, you know, when you're faced with that versus Corbyn, okay, yeah, we don't like the fact he supported Brexit, but, you know, it, it, it's a kind of no-brainer for people, yep. that the, that the, given what the, the choice on offer actually was. Now, there's as an outsider, you know, watching watching the uh, you know political evolution in the UK, it seems to me over the last let's say few months, and certainly through this campaign, that there were really two demographics that were of particular interest and really that that significantly impacted the final results of this election. One of them, one of these demographics being the youth vote, the other being the uh, let's let's call it the uh right wing and or racist working class vote um these mm -hmm. two these two votes i think are really significant now if you read any of the final uh analyses of this election you'll see that corbin uh really carried an incredible percentage of the youth vote something that hadn't been seen mm -hmm. in a number of decades and to your point earlier corbin seems to also have carried a significant proportion of the pro brexit working class conservative vote as well. Mm -hmm. Now, between these two demographics, is that really what carried Corbyn to this victory? I would say yes. And I'd say that's the, the, the strategic um, uh, brilliance, really, of the, of the campaign, as I say, to support this hard Brexit line. Um, you know, I actually, you know, Corbyn, despite the fact that he's been known as a pro-refugee campaigner for all his political career, he, on the on the campaign trail, he was, he was pretty... 
And some of the other uh, party leaders on the, one of the party debates correctly pointed out that what he was saying was not so different from uh, the UKIP line, actually. It's talking about how it's so important to end freedom of movement uh, and, uh, and have uh, controlled immigration, all of this kind of stuff, um, and how immigration was driving down wages of the working class. And, and you know, the same kind of line you would hear uh, from UKIP. So... Uh, and, and as I say, yeah, at the same time, that didn't seem to alienate um, the, the the youth and the and the immigrant communities themselves. I mean, talking about the youth vote, the turnout amongst under 25s in 2015, the previous election, was 43%. And it's been historic. It's been very low for, for a long time now. Uh, in the election last week, it reached 72%, which was actually higher than the average. I suspect it's probably the first... I may be wrong, but I suspect it may well be the first election in British history where the, where the under 25 turnout is higher than the overall average turnout. Um, so this, this, that's amazing, you know, getting close to kind of double the turnout amongst, amongst the youth. Um, and this, these youth, they were inspired. A lot's been made of the fact that he promised to get rid of tuition fees. And for, for sure, that was a, a part of the mobilization, but it was way broader than that. And a lot of these young people, what really, mobilize them to register to vote and to actually realize, you know, we, we, we should use whatever uh, whatever political influence we have. Was the Brexit referendum? Youth were, were solidly anti-Brexit um, in the main and uh, were shocked by the result. <clears throat> um, you know, I'm a, I, I teach in a in a secondary school and and we have uh, you know EU nationals in the class and so on. And the idea that their classmates would be would be thrown out of the country and and, and, and so on was uh, you know it's completely abhorrent to them. So uh, <clears throat> so the youth were strongly against Brexit, were mobilised to actually register to vote, and, and got kind of politicised by the Brexit referendum, um, and yet voted for Corbyn in their droves, just because he was well not just because but in, in large part because despite whatever he said about supporting Brexit, people really, they associate Theresa May with the kind of hard racist type of Brexit that they had come to despise. So, um, so yeah, and, but like I say, this, this kind of coalition, uh, which is managed to, uh, to, to secure for now, is it, not going to be sustainable in government because in government, he's going to have to actually choose, you know, what, what's he going to do. And I think that's when um, potentially there would be some demoralization setting, but that's a long way down the line, of course, and any number of things could happen before then. I mean, it may well be that Brexit doesn't happen. It may well be that once the reality sinks in of what it will mean for the British economy, once the reality of the kind of deal that we're likely to get uh, is actually put on the table and offered to Parliament, it may well be that they reject it and that they get rid of whoever negotiated it and get someone in who actually says, Do you know what, can we, can we stay after all? May, that may yet happen, and that may all happen long before any kind of Labour government comes about. So he may never have to deal with this question of Brexit in government. Um, but if he does, it's going to be very hard to maintain this this coalition because the youth vote uh, were politicised precisely by their opposition to Brexit. So yeah, that's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. I want to I want to get uh, on to the subject of your um, article in the current issue of Counterpunch, but. Uh, I would be remiss, I think, and, and, and really missing an opportunity not to ask you a very broad question to kind of try to wrap up the 
you know, the Corbyn uh, British election subject. And that has to do with placing what just happened in Britain into a broader context, into the broader narrative. We've seen in the last in the last 18 months, we've seen the in the U.S., the rise of Bernie Sanders, the uh, mm-hmm. the delegitimization and other and uh, essentially destruction of Bernie Sanders by the Democratic Party, the establishment of the center. We've seen the election triumph of Donald Trump. We've seen the triumph and then disastrous collapse of Marine Le Pen. There have been a lot of very and, and of course election of centrist neoliberal Macron in France. There have been a lot of very significant uh, electoral developments developments around these dynamics that we're talking about in Britain. So can you place what's just happened in Britain into this broader narrative that we've seen over the last 18 months? Mm, yeah, well, politics is, is, is in clearly in a, in a crisis phase, and, and that's uh, uh, linked to the fact that the economy is in a crisis phase. The capitalist cycle is in, is in a crisis phase. Um, and, and so we're seeing a lot of things in, in flux, the whole party system. Uh, is in flux. Um, there's there's anger. It can be channeled in various ways. The mainstream parties are not uh, able to channel it, so it opens doors for uh, for, for well for, for, for everyone really. Um, but but I think the diff the difficulty with uh, with any kind of left project in the West, I think, is 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 this that politics in the in the West and. I know obviously Britain um, better than anywhere else. In Britain, the deal for a party like the Labour Party has been a deal based on what we call social imperialism. The deal has been, as long as you are fully committed to British imperialism, you might be allowed to do a little bit of socialism domestically, right? So, so the Attlee government is the classic example, and the Attlee government is the one that all the kind of old Labour types always kind of hark back to. This was the government that came immediately following the Second World War, was in power for six years, created the NHS, uh, created the welfare state, um, began Keynesian economic management, guaranteeing full employment, nationalized uh, the, the coal industry, the steel industry, gas, electricity, the Bank of England. So it did all of this kind of uh, uh, left stuff um, within within Britain, um, massive council house building program, etc., but that was on the basis on a basis of and on the back of um, continued British colonialism. Uh, Britain began its nuclear weapons program under that government. They had brutal colonial wars against independence movements in Malaysia, in Kenya, um, helped to restore the monarchy in Greece, sending British troops to be involved there. Uh, instrumental, this Labour government, in the creation of NATO, begging the US to create NATO eventually, uh, 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 eventually successfully so, um, overseeing the uh, brutal partition of, of India into India and Pakistan, uh, overseeing the creation of Israel and the partition of Palestine. Uh, so, you know, and this, and, and this is the kind of, uh, the, the, the deal basically for left, for, for left-wing governments in power. You have to be, committed to imperialism if you want to do your social reforms at home. And and when I say this is the deal offered, I don't just only mean by the ruling class. I mean electorally as well. That seems to be what's necessary. And now things are changing all the time. So who knows? I, I think um, there is a real, there is a real uh, anger about the kind of wars Britain's involved in. Increasingly, um, since the Iraq war, 
you know that was that was an un, unpopular war and and the wars since have been unpopular as well so maybe this is changing but i'm i'm not convinced because unfortunately you know the the reality is just as the nhs was built on the profits uh, of of the british empire the, the basically built on the blood of of the hundreds of millions of of, of colonial subjects that labor never even considered uh, freeing um so today, you know, the, the, the welfare, the, the privileged living conditions in, in the Western world, they continue to be based on imperialist super profits and, and, and the, the, the profits of neocolonialism and so on, I, I which think... at the end of the day is enforced by militarism. So whether <clears throat> the Corbinites, they argue that, OK, look, they had to pick their battle, their battleground so they couldn't take on everyone at once within the Labour Party and so on. But, you know, give them time. Uh, and I like to believe that's true, but the, the reality is the manifesto they campaigned on that got them uh, the success they got in the last election was a classic social imperialist uh, manifesto. Social reforms at home, but continued support for nuclear weapons, defense uh, spending, NATO militarism, and so on and so forth. So that's what needs to be broken if this is to actually become a genuine, uh, a, a, a genuine pro-people, pro-humanity um uh, movement, uh, or rather than a parochial, let's let's share the colonial loot a bit more fairly amongst ourselves. Yeah, and I think I think that people on the left in the United States, particularly, understand this from Bernie Sanders. I mean, this is really the Bernie Sanders mm. model, right? The the right. support for uh, imperialist wars abroad, as long as they're not prosecuted by George Bush, then he'll support them. Uh, mm. Any any democratic war will be supported. Any uh, intervention, any use of human rights as a weapon for so-called responsibility to protect, and all of these programs uh, bringing the F thirty five fighter jet contracts to his home state of Vermont. I mean, you could point to a million examples where Bernie Sanders really did kind of support the military industrial complex and support the very uh, framework of empire within which his social democratic uh, domestic policy reforms can actually be effected. So uh, what you're describing is something I think that people of the left in the U.S. and elsewhere in the West understand perfectly well. Mm. Now, the question will be, though, whether a genuine alternative to that kind of, you know, social imperialist and social chauvinist kind of policy can really be brought about. Well, the one the one difference I would say uh, in defense of the of, of Corbyn and the Corbynites and so on is that Corbyn and the people around him, his advisor, Seamus Milne, um, his uh, shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, they are, I think, genuinely, they are anti-war at, at, the, at the very least. War, Corbyn has vo- voted against I think I'm right in saying every military intervention um, that Britain's been involved in since he became an M- an MP. He was a, he was one of very few who, uh, if I understand, if I remember correctly, was was against the uh, invasion of the uh, the attack on Argentina over the Falklands Islands in 1982. As I say, one of only 13 who voted against the war um, on Libya. Um, he's been a vocal su- uh, supporter of uh, of Irish. Uh, unity, Irish independence, um, which is which is quite rare, I have to say, on the English mainstream um, left, who find it much easier, of course, to denounce the crimes of others, including the U.S., rather than actually the crimes of their own government on their own uh, doorstep. Uh, he hasn't he hasn't uh, fallen into that trap. He has been um, pro-Irish, pro-Irish independence, and so on. So, you know, the, so 
so that there is a difference there. I don't think they want to go along uh, with this um, militarist policy, but the, but so far they have done, that, and that's the sad the, the sad reality. So well, and the question, um, of course, then yeah. becomes: is are they going along with that because uh, structurally they have no other choice? That this is the nature that this is the nature of the political game in the UK, just as it was uh, in the United States. So long as you want to run within the framework of the Democratic Party. Yeah, but as, as I say, I think it, I think it's deeper than that. I think that actually the, the British people in their gut understand that their standard of living is predicated on uh, neo-colonialism, which is backed up by militarism. I do think there's a, a, a on some level an awareness of that that the Western world is rich because the rest of the world is poor and the rest of the world is kept poor by Western military force. I think I think that there is some understanding of that. And that actually that feeds into British support for uh, militarism and so on. I don't buy into this uh, idea that it's all, you know, the, the, the reason people vote Tory or they sort of support the Queen and military stuff is all false consciousness generated by the media. I don't buy that. It's predicated on very uh, a material reality that they're benefiting from that. And so uh, so it's, 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 it's even you're right. There's structural elements. But I think it, it's even deeper still than that. It's actually to do. Uh, with, with with the with the material class reality of uh, of, of the Western um, of, of, of all classes within within Western citizenry who are, who are benefiting from colonialism and militarism and on some level know that and understand that and support that. Um, so that's what we're that's what we're up against. Indeed, I think that you're quite right. Okay, so we're going to uh, take a break. When we come back from the break, I want to shift gears, although it's not really shifting gears because it's actually quite related to what we're talking about, and that is your uh, recent article in the uh, Counterpunch magazine, the most recent issue about uh, 21st century fascism. We also want to talk about terrorism, the role of the British and U.S. state in uh, spreading terrorism and in using it as a weapon, that and a whole lot more with Dan Glazebrook. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Fascists on their top, we will counter attack. 
Back here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Dan Glazebrook. A lot to a lot to discuss, a lot to sort of digest here in the days after the very significant election in the UK. But we do have a larger issue uh, when it comes to electoral politics in the so-called West, uh, and uh, generally in terms of the body politic in Europe and in the United States. And this is the you know the 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 elephant in the room, as it were, the big F word that everyone is so scared of, and that is fascism. And you had a recent piece uh, in the current issue of Counterpunch entitled 21st Century Fascism. Um, I want to just start very generally and, and just kind of ask you to summarize, if you could, the general thesis of the article, which I'm sure a lot of listeners haven't yet had a chance to uh, read and to really kind of explore in depth. So what's the overall theme of the article and why was this so timely for you to write now? Well, the overall thesis that we're, we're entering into a fascist uh, epoch, effectively, where we're seeing the rise of uh, fat. Uh, of parties that and, and movements that we can say are at least at the very least uh, rooted in the fascist tradition they're coming from the kind of fascist tradition um, and at the same time we're seeing a fascization of uh, mainstream parties as well um, uh, and even of the left actually um, and and so what what I mean by this is that if you look at what fascism is? There's a lot of misunderstanding about what fascism is, I think, and there's the, the fact that it's often thrown a, around just as a as a kind of generic term of abuse uh, doesn't help. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding. People kind of associate it with dictatorship or with totalitarianism, or even with um, specifically concentration camps and death camps. But but fascism cannot be reduced to one of its elements at a particular historical period. Um, uh, or you know, with kind of some general idea of dictatorship, fascism is something quite specific, and I think what it is is it's a mass movement um, which is based on the idea that which is a response to a perceived decline in national strength and the kind of virility of the nation almost. It's an emotional uh, reaction against that, which blames national decline. On, uh, on an enemy within that's somehow an impurity that's weakened the nation from within, um, usually with the, with, the, with the support of external um, forces as well. So if you look at Germany and Italy, uh, Italy had been humiliated uh, in the First World War. Interestingly, Italy and Germany were on different sides in the, at the end of the First World War. Germany was on the losing side, of course, so that was national humiliation, uh, which Nazism was in part a reaction against that humiliation, blaming it on those who... It claimed had stabbed them in the back 
uh, basically socialists and, and behind the socialists, of course, the, the figure of the Jew. In Italy, Italy were on the winning side in, in the end on, of, of World War One, but they were betrayed by their by their allies who basically didn't give them what they said they would give them uh, in return for their cooperation. And it, and that was basically because of Italy's weakness. They couldn't bargain to actually even get their what they felt were their fair share of the spoils of the war. So again, very humiliating. And Mussolini's analysis was, well, this is because the socialists have weakened the uh, the um, country from from within, so they need to be purged. So it's it basically it's 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 a, it's a it's a response to national decline and weakness that believes that if you just only can purge and wipe out this this impurity within the national body politic, uh, then then we will we will be great again, in, in Trump's words. And I think that's uh, and I think that's exactly what's behind. I think that is. What's going on with movements like Brexit, uh, with Le Pen, with Trump, and so on? Uh, it's the same kind of thing going on, which is the West, the Western world is in is in decline globally in terms of its global power. Um, that manifests in all in in, in kinds of uh, all kinds of ways, but it leads to a feeling of some kind of humiliation. You could see that um, on Trump's uh, campaign trail, the constant bashing of of, of China. Um, as having, you know, kind of humiliated the U.S., taking their jobs and so on and so forth, and the idea that, you know, if 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 we can just get rid of of these these elements that are these weak elements within the country that are weakening us, uh, then we will we will we'll be great again. There's no there's no structural problem or there's no economic problem or anything with the uh, um, with, with U.S. Um, power in the world but but it's, it's it's just being weakened by these weak elements within that need to be purged One so thing, i think that that is the same thing 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 going on go ahead yeah no i i think that's absolutely right i've i've written about that as well a couple of issues back in counterpunch uh in in an article entitled donald trump and the triumph of white identity politics which mm. i think really kind of uh i i was touching on a lot of those same points you just mentioned in one word mm. you didn't use but I, I i think you were kind of implying and and i certainly was talking about it as well it, it, it is this word ownership. There is a mm -hmm. sense of ownership over the country and ownership. Our country has been taken away from us. It's been stolen mm -hmm. from us by the immigrant, yeah. the Muslim, the Mexican, yeah. the, you know, fill in the blank. They have stolen mm -hmm. what is rightfully ours and we're here to yeah. take it back. And if you that was the slogan of Brexit. Exactly. Well, take our country back. Take yeah. our country back or take back control. You saw Farage mm -hmm. all over the UK touting this take back control, take our country back. Obviously, mm -hmm. the parallel is, is stares you right in the face with make America great again. Le Pen mm -hmm. kind of uh, in a slightly more French kind of stylistic way, but was really kind of getting at the same ideas. This, this question of ownership, I think, is very important in all of this, that it is not just a humiliation. It is a loss of ownership and when and when you said uh weak elements we should keep in mind that what the what, what they mean by the weak element is not just the immigrant or the you know the the black or whatever it is the liberal white man and his political yeah. correctness quote unquote and his progressive exactly. politics the, who allow the immigrants in exactly yeah. they allow this they invite our national destruction so there is well, that added layer Absolutely, and, and and fascism is often presented as primarily anti-liberal. It's not primarily anti-liberal. It's primarily 
uh, anti, that's actually primarily anti-proletarian, yes. first and foremost. Now, in the 30s, that meant anti-communist party, anti-socialist. Um, today, it's particularly focused, as you say, on the, on the figure of the immigrant. Um, and, uh, but, but the, but the liberalism becomes an enemy secondarily for not being firm enough with the immigrant, the communist, the Jew, whoever it is. Um, so yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. But the second part of my, uh, uh, of the article was basically arguing that fascism is, is, is first and foremost is, is, uh, a, a violent response. Um, <clears throat> well, really a commitment, I, I would say, to smash proletarian revolution by by any means necessary um because it's the proletarian revolution that's seen as weakening uh the nation and of course that was that was very clear to see in uh in the 20s and 30s in italy and and germany there were uh big communist parties that were gaining in strength um particularly with the economic crisis and so on and that they were the first enemies the first people that were rounded up of course but by by hitler so there was very clear to see uh, the, the ways in which fascism was, was, was aimed primarily at destroying the proletarian revolution. But I think our, our, our understanding of class um, and a nation and so on is, is really uh, obfuscated these days. We can't really see the wood for the trees sometimes because our understanding of uh, the, 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 the ideology of borders has so uh, infiltrated our thinking ideologically that we, we, we are unable to really analyze things properly. So what I argue in the article is actually that the the system of border uh, controls is, is actually being uh, being challenged as never before, basically by immigration. Now that this is not a overtly, you know, some sort of overtly revolutionary uh, in movement of revolutionary intent. It's literally just people fleeing for their lives or fleeing somewhere or to trying to seek somewhere where they can get a decent wage to feed their family. But nevertheless. Uh, the, the, the phenomenon of, of so-called illegal immigration, clearly what it is, is a refusal to abide by the global border regime. And that's always what drives revolution. It's, a, it's, it's an understanding that uh, the, the, rules, the, can, the rules as, as set out at the moment just cannot provide decent living standards. They, they, they cannot be abided. So there's a fantastic uh, book I'd, I'd recommend to your Listeners by Reese Jones called Violent, uh, I think it's called Violent Borders, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And he says, look, that people refusing to abide by the, um, the, the border regime, which basically says that if you're born into a, a, a low, a low wage, impoverished, uh, economy, you must be condemned to die there, right? It's, it's a modern form of feudalism. Um, he says the people who refuse to abide by that, they're no different from, uh, Harriet Tubman or Nelson Mandela or people who refused to abide by their particular systems that kept them, uh, kept groups of people in their place based on their ethnicity or nationality or, or, or whatever. Now, when you see people like Trump, they're, they're being elected because they're promising to smash that movement. They're promising to say, no, we will not allow this. We will vigorously reinforce uh, these rules that people are not accepting. So my argument is that actually the, the, the hundreds of thousands of people so-called illegally crossing borders every year. That can be seen as a form of proletarian revolution because these the, the, the working class of the global south effectively is the global proletariat. And, and, and revolution means you know, ref, refusing to abide by the, uh, the, the, the um, structures and, this, and the system that's, that's mapped out for you. And so that's exactly what's happening. And the modern-day fascism is all about saying that that's got to stop. We're going to stamp that out.
that, that's right. Um, that's by right. any means necessary. That's right. And uh, one of the other one of the other points that I, I want to get your take on as well, and I wrote about this uh, in, in in my piece was this question of what's called entitativity. In other words, the the idea that individuals of a particular group form a cohesive whole. And uh, you know, obviously, there is an entitativity among African Americans, uh, you know, blacks in in the United States, or among Muslims or whatever. And 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 what we saw in 2016 with the rise of Trump was the uh, creation of an entitativity, a feeling of entitativity among white America, that white Americans represented a distinct group and that that group was under assault, under attack. Their traditions, their their culture, etc. was being taken away from them. And and, and that was a major, uh, I, I think, a major transformation that we saw over this election cycle. So historically in the United States, there was very little that connected the uh, Italian Catholic in New York City, the Irish Catholic in New York City, the Southern Methodist in Atlanta, the Midwestern or Southern Baptist, Midwestern Methodist, Lutherans, whatever it may be in various parts of the country. Uh, the U.S. has always been so, so large. It's been like many countries within one. People were separated along class lines, cultural group lines, and so forth. With Trump, we saw whiteness becoming central, becoming a focal point of a political movement, or if not a movement, mm. at least a political mood. This was something unique, I think. And similarly, I think we're seeing this throughout Europe as well in response to all kinds of social and political trends. So can you speak to that a little bit in the UK context? And then tell me, do you think that this is also at the root of this 21st century fascism? Yeah, absolutely. But I would say it's a, it's, a, it's a symptom of it rather than at the root of it. What? Because what is whiteness after all? It's not a biological category. It's a it's a politic it's a political marker of of, of privilege. Um, you know, and that you can see this throughout history. That that that, that the the boundaries between who's white and who's not very have been very fluid. And yes. in 19th century England, they used to talk about the working races. They didn't used to talk about the working classes. They used to talk about the working races uh, quite often in, in, in newspapers and so on in the 19th century. They're literally seen as, as, as a kind of race apart, you know, breeding and so on. Amongst the upper class, this was all important. So uh, the idea that actually um, the, 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 the aristocracy and, and the, you know, slum-dwelling uh, Irish or whatever were, were of the same ethnicity wasn't even factored in in, in the 19th century because... Whiteness is a badge of, of privilege rather than ethnicity, fundamentally. And, and there's an interesting book, um, uh, that How the Irish Became White. You know, the Irish were colonized people. So they were not uh, recipients of white privilege uh, until very recently. Um, so, uh, and, and arguably the whole Brexit debate actually was about um, whether Polish and Romanians count as white. Should they get white privileges? Should they, should, you know, should they get treated as equal citizens or not um are they really white is another way of of, of saying it so uh so so that's so and and like i say the, the 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 fundamentals of this modern fascism of being anti-immigration determined to, to 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 destroy what i characterize a proletarian revolution by immigrants refusing to accept the global border regime um by any means necessary this the, the whiteness is not is 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 a kind of identity that's that's formed in opposition to that. So so whiteness means those of us who we feel are entitled to 
to to these privileges against these upstart newcomers who think that they can have the same rights. Ah, but Dan, that. but Dan, they're just protecting culture. They're just protecting and preserving their culture from the infiltrating barbarian hordes. Well, as you say, it's a it's a, it's a culture that's that's very recently been been crafted out of a, a number of different enough. different cultures. Yeah, very convenient. Um, and 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 also, it's not um, you know. I mean, it's it's just interesting when you look at these fascist movements. If you look in um, uh, uh, Northern Ireland, for example, the National Front in um, in in Northern Ireland have uh, have black members because in Northern Ireland, the National Front's based about Protestant supremacy over Catholics. Uh, so anyone who's down with with, with uh, harassing and beating up Catholics is welcome. You know, all all creeds and colours, uh, and likewise in um, in Britain, with the EDL, it's, it's anti-Muslim, so they welcome, you know, whatever extreme, uh, Sikhs, Hindu, any any race, any color, as long as you're down with smashing the smashing the Muslim, that's that's fine. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think really that the fundamental is what was defining this is uh, is the is the is the hostility um, to the immigrant, and 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 whiteness is one way of of, of characterizing that, if you like. Um, yeah, it's not the only way, um, but it is, it is it is one way that's coming increasingly. You're right, increasingly dominant. And and one of the things that you're alluding to both in this conversation here and in in uh, your article is the simple fact that the idea that uh, working class white people, be they in the UK or in the United States, that they have this sort of shared experience with bourgeois whites, with elite whites, as opposed to with other working people who are from uh, communities of color. This is also a hallmark of fascism, right? The erasing of class contradictions, the erasing of class antagonisms in favor of a nationalistic fervor that sort of upholds the symbol, upholds the concept of the nation much more than it upholds the concept of working class solidarity. And Similarly, we see this in the United States, of course. Donald Trump, you know, for all the talk about Donald Trump uh, appealing to uh, white workers in, you know, in the Rust Belt and so forth, for all of the highlighting of that fact, the reality is that Donald Trump carried a larger proportion of the of the elite rich vote than traditional Republicans have. He carried something like 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10 of the wealthiest voting districts in the United States. This was not mm. a working class movement. It was the illusion mm. of a working class movement shrouded within a white supremacist movement. Yeah, absolutely. And fascism has always, is, has always been a, a, a sort of pseudo-workerist, pseudo-leftist, uh, just itself. Co it co-ops leftist left, drag. It, it co-ops left terminology, left language, even left movements. And it mm, not only co-ops them, it infiltrates them. And that's something we're also yeah. seeing. Well, just but before we come on to that, just on this issue of the loss of culture and so on, I think, especially in the, in the British and especially in the English culture, this is really interesting because that you could argue that the English people were the first to be colonized by the uh, British uh, ruling class, by, Brit by what became British imperialism, because um, you think of the time that the enclosures took place, what we call the enclosures, over, over several centuries. But this was basically the clearing of the peasants from, uh, from the land as, as, as the agriculture became based more on capitalist rather than feudalist um, kind of uh, thinking um, or thinking i should say or economic system uh so 
you know, the, the classic, I think it was Mark said that the um, England's the only country where sheep eat people. And what he meant by that was these new capitalist landlords would, would throw off all the peasants from their land to replace them with sheep because they could make more money from wool than they could in taxing the, you know, the crops of the, of the peasants who were there formerly. So you had these huge uh, clearances taking place over many centuries um, in Britain, and, and hand, this this was a you know in in this, this was destroying the the the, the English people's culture, um, and the witch hunts were a big part of this as well. This was a war against women, but it was also a war against the um, the oral traditions and the oral culture and so on that was being uh, that was being wiped out um, by the enclosures, uh, and it was, the, the women were often the, the resistance leaders against that. So the, the witch hunts is all tied in with this war against the English people. Um, and my comrade and collaborator Sukant Chandani often points out that it was the same devices, literally the same iron uh, shackles and masks and torture devices that were used against uh, uh, enslaved, kidnapped and enslaved Africans that were first used on the, on, on the English women. So. Just this this whole thing about loss of culture, I find it fascinating with with, with England that we we've lost our culture a long long time ago, and I think there's a certain amount of jealousy, frankly, amongst immigrant communities who still are in touch with some something you could call culture that's not just something handed down from their exploiter and their oppressor. Um, I think there's a certain amount of jealousy actually there, and so so when people talk about loss of the culture, you feel like well our culture was robbed several hundred years ago. Um, the immigrants are not robbing it. They're just reminding you that there was that that people can have some culture and you haven't got any. That's, yeah, that's, I, that's, uh, I think that's, that's, that's right. Reading I have. Well, and and and, and that that I think goes back to what I was talking about this concept of entitativity, right? That the immigrant is by by very definition part of a community, part of a cohesive whole, part of a group mm. within the nation, and that they will always be, uh, you know, have a home within that group. And as for quote-unquote white people, that never really existed. And I think that now we're beginning to see a sort of manufacturing of that. Certainly we see that in the United States with the so-called alt-right, people like Richard Spencer, white supremacists, so-called racialism, these type of ideas which are gaining ever more traction particularly among disaffected white males. Why? Mm. To I think to some degree because they don't feel part of any cohesive whole. And the reason mm -hmm. and, and, and and the reason that they've identified is the infiltrator, the Muslim, the black, the Mexican, mm. whatever it may be, that they have taken away that opportunity to be part of a community, to be part of a whole. Mm. Yep. Absolutely. Um, no, I agree. I agree. And and, and obviously you know, links with uh, unemployment as well. You know, if you're in a place of work where you've got a stable job and the, you can get some sense of community there at least. And of course, of course that's all uh, undermined, but that's not being undermined by immigrants. That's being undermined by neoliberal capitalism. Um, this, this is this is stuff we know. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's South Park. They took our jobs. You know what I mean? Mm. They, you know, but anyway, um, I, I want to just point out one other very interesting point you made in this article, Dan. I think it bears a little bit of discussion. Uh, you pointed out that there is a misconception among a lot of people, even people who throw around the term fascism, that, mm. that, that fascism is somehow inherently anti-democratic. 
And in fact, mm. the, the, the reality is that fascism is a lot of things, but anti-democratic in, in a lot of ways it is not. And historically, we have seen, uh, you know, the structures and framework of, of quote unquote democracy used to fuel fascist movements. So can you talk a little bit about this sort of misconception of fascism as anti-democratic and your argument that in fact it is in, in many ways based on the political institutions of quote unquote democracy? Yeah, well, well, exactly. I mean, what is, you know, we can say, okay, well, are you saying fascism is democratic? Well, no, I'm not really saying fascism is democratic, but is, is anyone else saying, for example, that the, the British political system is, is democratic? You know, there are lots of people who claim that their system is democratic. And the point I was making is that fascists are one of them, <laughs> you know, that's right. Uh, they're not, they're not explicit. They're not, it's not saying they're, they're against certain type. They're against liberal democracy. Sure. Um, but I would argue liberal democracy, democracy is not very democratic. So agreed. Uh, <laughs> right. So, uh, so, and the, so you can think of democracy as, 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 a, as an acclaim that, uh, your, you somehow, the, the body polity somehow represents the masses. And, and fascism is absolutely is a uh, it does claim that they often use referendums and plebiscites for the, that shows they take that claim seriously, right? To, to be representing the masses, uh, and they and it's a part of their claim to authority and, and, and legitimate authority that they do that better and more effectively than a liberal democratic system. So, for example, using referendums, which are a form of direct democracy. So it's you know they, there's they're not saying what we're against democracy, but this uh, idea that they represent the masses is part of their, and always has been historically, part of their uh, 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 their identity, part of the, the way the fascists present themselves. So, and and that so that really confuses people today when they say, oh yeah, but you know Le Pen or whoever they accept the democratic system, so therefore they're not fascists. Well, no, sorry, that's not that's not uh, that that that's a misreading of, of of fascist history to think that fascists ever presented themselves any differently from that that's ex and that's exactly where i was going and i'm glad you you kind of went there because the the argument you hear so often is that oh you know you 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 leftists you anti-fascist types you you know you throw around the word fascism for anybody who's a conservative le pen mm -hmm. is just a conservative farage is just mm -hmm. a conservative trump is just mm -hmm. a conservative these aren't people who are advocating blood in the streets they're running in elections they're running campaigns etc etc and i I think the point to be reiterated is that the facade of democracy and the, the, the mechanisms, the institutions of so-called democracy are not somehow inherently anti-fascist. No, that's right. That's right. And, and, and as I say, when, we, when you're into, a, into, into a fascist epoch, you, you, okay, you have overtly fascist parties. Um, today, today, they're less overt because of the, the you know, negativity associated with fascism. But parties and movements that are more easily clearly characterized as, fasc as fascist. But you also have, a, as I say, a fascization of mainstream politics. And you can see that very clearly within the Conservative Party in the, in the UK with the kind of measures that I, I mentioned that Theresa May supported, deliberately, willfully uh, drowning refugees to send a message to others to not, to, to, that, they sh that they can't come. Um, and another way of seeing fascism, I think, is you can see it as the, the collapse of, of indirect structural violence into direct physical violence. So, for example, the structural violence of the global border regime that condemns people to famines and so on based on where where they live 
actually when people start challenging that structural violence and then have to be met with direct physical violence actually inflicted on them by other people, then you can say that that, that also marks, uh, marks a fascist epoch as well. And, and we're seeing that as well with, you know, actually it's not just a case of, of, of Mexicans and uh, uh, pe- people in the global south being uh, forced to live under the structural violence of, of, of the division of the world uh, according to uh, according to borders, but also being gunned down at the border when they try to flee. Uh, so this is another kind of marker, I think, of, of, of entering into a into a fascist epoch. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, so so it's not really to, to the, the point is not that just say oh well. Raise Le Pen and so on, they're, they're just normal conservatives. The point of normal conservatism is itself becoming fascist. It's moving in that direction. Well, and I, mean, I think I think neoliberalism has shown over at least 45, 50 years that all politics shifts to the right under the uh, auspices of neoliberalism. Uh, certainly in the United States, the Democratic Party today, ostensibly the center-left party, uh, is far more right-wing than the Republican Party was 50 years ago. And the mm. Republican Party is to the extreme right wing of what, you know, I mean, the, the, the contemporary Republican Party is probably closer to the Ku Klux Klan than it was to the Republican Party of 50, 60 years ago. And so that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah absolutely. So the, things are moving very fast in this direction. Corbyn was at pains to point out that his so-called far left uh, uh, economic policy in his manifesto was actually he was proposing to. Uh, raised corporation tax to a level that was still lower where it had been seven years ago under the conservatives. Yeah. So we're not, <laughs> let alone, you know, that the labor under Corbyn are still way to the right economically of, of, of where mainstream conservatives were in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, so, yeah, same, sure. same exact, same exact conditions hold in the United States. Now, one other thing I want to talk about before we run out of time, and this relates directly to what we've just spent the last few minutes talking about. Um, we have this sort of rising fascism, and we see it ex- uh, expressed in terms of the politics that we've been talking about. But I think that there's another element to this that is really under the radar for the vast majority of political observers, and that has to do with the what I would call the infiltration or co-optation of left, what traditionally have been left movements by fascist elements. And in particular, mm-hmm. I think one of the principal targets of that is what we've always called anti-imperialism. And that the movement uh-huh. of anti-imperialism, opposing the uh, you know the interlocking institutions of the military-industrial complex and the political elites and finance capital and all of those things that come together to make the quote-unquote empire that we all uh-huh. know and we all are opposing here, that that movement to oppose imperialism has itself become a battleground wherein fascist elements that ostensibly present themselves as allies ostensibly present themselves as enemies of the empire have now infiltrated into what I consider to be the territory of the uh, the socialist, the leftist, the anti-imperial tradition. So can you talk mm. a little bit about this sort of infiltration of anti-imperialism by fascist elements and uh, A, why this is important and B, how they've managed to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can... You can see this very clearly, and again, this is no, this is nothing new. I mean, uh, Hitler railed against British imperialism the, and, and, and the iniquities of the of the British Empire, much as he hoped to create his own version of it. All the while admiring um, it tremendously for its commitment to eugenics and all sorts of other things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, 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 
it's, uh, it's very contradictory fascism, obviously, to, to, to say the least. Um, but so this, 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 this is nothing new. Uh, and, and, and you can see how it comes about because imperialism has used, particularly in the last, well, it obviously began in, in Afghanistan, has used, uh, has used, has used and abused Muslims, um, to, uh, and particularly promoted a distorted, uh, type of Islam, um, in order to, to mobilize people for use against, uh, communist, the communist government of Afghanistan and latterly more secular type of governments in particular, particularly Libya and Syria. Um, but of course, then if you, you know, if you're, <clears throat> for, for those of us who are, who are arguing against these, uh, proxy wars, um, against independent states of the global south, there's, you know, there's increasingly, and yourself and, and Sukhant Chandan were amongst the first to really, uh, warn of the dangers of this and call this out, that we find ourselves bedfellows with those who maybe just oppose, uh, uh, death squads, the same death squads in Syria and Libya that we oppose, but not necessarily because they're proxy forces of uh, of imperialism, but just because they're Muslims fighting against a secular state, against a more westernized state that we should have some cultural affinity with, right? With in in uh, um, in, in Syria or Libya. So that's the, and, and and we have to absolutely clearly distinguish ourselves from uh, from from people who might reach what on the face of it seems like a similar kind of conclusion but based on completely uh, different and actually opposite, um, you know, ideological principles. Um, well, Dan, let me, let me uh, just quickly give a, a, you know, a brief anecdote here, and, and I want to get your take on this. So in 2005, 2006, 2007, I was involved in a lot of protests. This is already a couple of years after the anti-Iraq war protests. This is the height of the Bush administration, right? And I I ended up becoming chummy and friends with a number of people that I would describe as just, you know, run of the mill liberals, right? People connected to mm -hmm. various NGOs, people who were opposing mm -hmm. the Iraq war, opposing Bush, the Bush administration. And I saw these people mm -hmm. as allies at the time. And then Obama mm -hmm. comes along and Obama really takes up the mantle of empire. Obama wages wars. Obama does all of the things that really carried on the tradition of all of the presidents that came before him. And those same mm -hmm. liberals who I had seen as allies, I had begun to see as enemies because they were supporting mm -hmm. all of this and 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 really yep. in a very treacherous sort of way and in mm -hmm. opposing those liberals and in opposing those forces that were supporting empire under a democratic party face i found myself really kind of standing aligned with a lot of people whose politics really kind of made me shudder in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and i found mm -hmm. myself you know kind of uh being let's say uh surrounded in a metaphorical sense by a lot of people who i you know would I think rightly describe as fascists. And so mm. this is one of the issues that really needs to be addressed, that when an anti-imperialist position aligns with a fascist position uh, that, that mm. presents itself as anti-imperialist, this needs mm -hmm. to be called out and it needs to be exposed because to not do so basically robs anti-imperialism of its real and historical uh, tradition and replaces it with one that is how should I say, cynically manipulated by opportunists globally. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I think you're spot on. And, uh, and yeah, and you, and you see, you see this all over the place. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it's really quite shocking actually how many people have, 
turn to uh, Brexit, Trump, even Le Pen, um, people, as you say, who you might have a few years ago considered yourself to be some kind of ally with. For I'll give you an example, Jean Brickmont, who wrote um, uh, Humanitarian Imperialism, Using Human Rights to Sell, to sell War. Good book. Yep. Um, <clears throat> And he's supporting Le Pen. He's supporting Brexit. You know, as, as and and you get people like Diane Johnston, who actually on Counterpunch uh, of of all places yeah. was was come, who's done excellent work in the past opposing NATO intervention in Yugoslavia and so on. One of the best on that issue. James Petrus. Right, and um and and Johnston was 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 trying to portray Le Pen as as some something like akin to the Algerian independence movement. Um, as if, as if France is, is, is a butchered colony of the U.S. or something. Uh, you know, completely, uh, well, asinine. My, you know, wacky, wacky Fucking stuff, asinine. Wacky stuff. Yeah, I, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever way you want to describe it, but, um, out of line with, with, with reality in any, in any sense. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say because like I, like I say, and like you say, I thought these were people who had, were somehow on the same page, but, 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 we're increasingly finding clearly, clearly not. And, and, and if, and if they are, uh, as you say, if we're all being kind of lumped together and if we're basically leading people to websites, uh, where this sort of stuff is being portrayed, then, you know, we really have to think, well, you know, are we, are we actually part of the problem? That's here? exactly are right. Are we bringing, are we bringing, bringing, are we giving a left veneer to, uh, to platforms that are basically promoting fascism. That's exactly right. Um, and 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 those and when they do get exposed by people uh, for exactly that, they simply they simply dump those people and try to find other uh, leftist masks that they can use to cover over what it is that they're really doing. And we've seen this uh, over and over and over again. And there are a number of platforms, including uh, Russian media, that are probably uh, the most guilty of doing precisely yeah. this. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, use Using, using left-wing analysis, left-wing politics, left-wing uh, personalities in order to sort of humanize what is undoubtedly and unmistakably a fascist politics that's being promoted globally. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. RT has to be called out for that. And I, I, I have to admit, I still go on RT. I still write for Counterpunch despite, and I still hear talking to you now. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and I still I'm still regularly on RT. They keep asking me back, um, and uh, but but I will I'll call them out, you know, because they are they are providing a platform to uh, to fascists, and it's uh, it's it's unacceptable. The um, you know it's a tip, frankly, a typical news piece on 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 RT these days will be let's find somewhere where someone's been stabbed by an immigrant. And then ask the National Front what they think about it. You know, sure. that's not news. That seems, that's, that's, that seems that's appropriate. That's propaganda. Yeah, that seems appropriate. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I'm, uh, yeah, I, 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 I frequently have to consider whether, you know, should I be on this, on this platform at all? I, I, my, my current position is, well, I'll say, I'll say what I feel I need to say. I'll call them out. And, you know, but it's a, it's a platform to get the message out and there frankly aren't that many. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm constantly debating with myself whether is this, you know, is, you have to weigh it up, don't you? As I say, you well, on the one hand, you're getting a message out there. You want to get out there. 
Um, but on the other hand, are you bringing people toward, towards this this uh, website? There's a platform in which voices like mine are increasingly outnumbered by the people I see as basically the main enemy today. So Well, and, and, and the thing yeah. is, Dan, I mean, part of the problem is that uh, something like RT transforms the nature of anti-imperialism. You get sucked into uh, the world of RT and anti-imperialism mm. ceases to be opposing imperialism wherever you find it, and it becomes oppose the United States and support whatever Russia says and does. That's yeah, ultimately uh, what it becomes. And unfortunately, the problem is that uh, there there are times when when Russia or China or any other country uh, needs to be supported because it is targeted, because it is destabilized or what have you. At the very same time, that's not to the sort of exclusion of being honest and forthright about all of the really nasty and vile things that the Russians are doing in supporting these fascist movements throughout Europe and in the U.S., yeah, and 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 I, I think that you know I think the the Russian position uh, for a long time could be described as not not prince not not anti-imperialist in terms of its principle, but objectively speaking, I think you could describe it uh, Russian at least Russian foreign policy as objectively anti-imperialist in as much as it was an obstacle and a hindrance to imperialism. Um, nevertheless, that's changing now. I think with Trump, the 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 this this business between. Uh, Russia and Trump is, um, you know, that the support that you, the RT gives and uh, gave and still gave, still gives to Trump. The fact that for you know years Russia was uh, was resisting effectively any kind of uh, U.S. direct intervention in Syria. There was no U.S. Um, direct open attack on Syrian government forces. Uh, under 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 Obama, largely because of of, of Russian, uh, you know, <clears throat> Russia's standing up to that. And and when there was when it was on the cards in August 2013, uh, Russia, you know, made it very clear uh, that they were fully behind their Syrian ally. As soon as Trump comes in, um, you know, Arty's fawning over Trump all of the time, and and it seems Trump can just can can uh, <clears throat> can bomb a, a Syrian airbase, start bombing the. Um, pro-government forces in in syria and all you you know there's no talk anymore from russia about shooting down uh nato jets or you know a massive conflagration is just oh you know we should bring this to a tribunal or, or or something um clearly i think what's happening is russia is hoping for some kind of deal with trump we've seen you know more and more evidence coming out about the various under the table no- negotiations yeah. and so on they're hoping for uh some kind of uh, deal whereby sanctions will be lifted, maybe some of their positions be recognized in Ukraine and Syria. Um, and but what 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 are they prepared to do in exchange for that? Well, I think unfortunately they're making it very clear what they're prepared to do, which is potentially sell out their uh, ally in Syria, potentially sell out Iran, um, and um, and and for what you know because because I'm increasingly thinking. I, I originally thought. You know, maybe maybe Trump really hopes to do something like Kissinger did in the early 70s. And actually, you know, when 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 Kissinger managed to uh, basically strike a deal with with China against against the Soviet China as an ally against the Soviets, um, <clears throat> is he trying to do that that kind of thing? Is he is is he thinking well, if we can get uh, Russia on board, um, then they'll get, give us a free hand to deal with Iran. Um, and basically genuinely thinking that he could make some kind of, of, of deal with Russia. Increasingly, I'm thinking, 
I don't think he thinks that's ever going to happen. Uh, I think he's just stringing Russia along with this jam tomorrow bullshit um, in the hope that in the meanwhile, they will they will allow <coughs> allow Trump to basically uh, push back every 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 gain that's been made by the global south in the past 10, 15 years uh, with the hope that, you know, one day sanctions will be lifted. I don't well, think they're planning to lift sanctions at all. I think this is a complete um, uh, delusion, actually, if, if Russia thinks it's going to get out of this. It's not. Well, and, and again, I mean, look, let's look at the objective reality of, of uh, Russia's so-called uh, anti-imperialism here, where, you know, you hear a lot of these pro-Russian analysts talking about how Russia is this great friend of Iran. Well, in fact, what you've seen over the last 18 months is Russia's charm offensive has been in Israel and Saudi Arabia, not in Iran. It's been it's mm-hmm. been Egypt, it's been Saudi Arabia, and it's been Israel. Those those countries mm-hmm. that are strategically and traditionally close to the United States. Now, the idea being, is Russia trying to pry them out of the U.S. Mm-hmm. orbit, away from the empire? This is nonsense. If anybody believes that the empire could just give up on Saudi Arabia and Israel, and that this would somehow not be a a a, a tectonic shift in in global history, this is you're out of your minds. Obviously, the Russians are just trying to get their piece of the imperial pie here they're trying to pick apart as best they can the region take the spoils that are going to be theirs and play on the chessboard as it exists this is not some kind of you know life or death struggle against the united states this is trying to sort of maneuver the united states into a mutually beneficial relationship well in my opinion it's it's, it's, it's often you find uh that, that this is often a Achilles' heel of um, of of Putin, in particular, uh, which is his desire to be taken seriously yes. um, and and embraced by the West. He wants to be accepted. He wants a seat at the big boys' table. He wants a seat at the big boys' table. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So you saw, um, and this has been a you know rec- recurrent theme throughout his uh, throughout his presidency, and, and 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 unfortunately, as you say, that that what. Uh, what seemed like for for some years, you know, a, a genuine uh, an, uh, alliance emerging, pro global South alliance emerging, the BRICS and so on, it seems actually potentially is is Putin just are these just bargaining chips? Are these just things to use as leverage yeah. uh, and use as part of the deal that he hopes to get uh, from from the U.S. rather than actually building uh, an effective new. Uh, global south um hey, dominated global system hey dan I'm maybe we sure. could maybe we could ask dilma rusev if BRICS is for real mm. maybe we could ask uh jacob zuma and the anc in south africa if BRICS is a real coalition and a real partnership or just a uh, public relations exercise mm. yeah well dilma's uh you know, it's, uh, it's a whole other story, isn't it? It's well, a whole other story. No, but, but we I, should... mean, I, I think that we're we're, fit, we're basically 15 years down the line with BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and all of these, uh, you know, supposedly anti-Western groupings that were emerging to challenge Western hegemony. And what you find is that while the West is in political crisis, it's only getting more solid internationally. And there's been little to no pushback from the global South or from any countries that might ally with the global South, including including Russia and uh, maybe to a slightly lesser degree, China. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sad state of affairs. It's a sad state of affairs. What can I say? (laughs) 
Well, I think that um, this is I think that this is just the cold hard reality that anybody on the left who considers themselves anti-imperialist needs to uh, you know come to terms with. This is the reality, mm-hmm. and and the idea that we're going to have some kind of quote unquote multipolarity where uh, Russia and you know to some degree China represent this sort of counterweight to the empire. I think that this is nonsense. I think that Trump and Brexit and all of the developments that you and I have been talking about this last hour or so, these things have fundamentally transformed global political relations in a way that I think a lot of our analysis has yet to catch up to. Mm. Well, I, I don't know. I'm not. I don't necessarily share your skepticism completely. I do think China are uh, are uh, definitely doing something different um, to to imperialism, and I think with uh, I think R- Russia was part of that for a time. I just think it's been, as I say, it's been kind of strung along um, by 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 Trump and with its own and with Putin's own, as you say, desire to be taken seriously, this is, this is very damaging, but, um, I don't, I don't see the, uh, the, the, the Chinese role as simply some kind of wannabe, uh, us empire or, or a British oh, empire. No, no, no. I'm something not, very, very I'm, different. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying mm-hmm. is that China as an integral part of the so-called BRICS has been unable, either unwilling or unable, mm. or maybe both yeah. to, uh, you know, to do anything on the part of Venezuela, a key ally mm-hmm. to do anything yeah. for yeah. Brazil, to do anything for South Africa. I think what I'm, mm-hmm. what I'm getting at is not to say that China is somehow is some kind of, you know, imperialism light, uh, just like the United mm. States, but rather to say that the notion that we had a multipolar direction, that, that the global politics was really, truly going in a multipolar direction, I think now needs to be uh, re-evaluated as maybe an incorrect analysis. Mm. Well, as I say, I still don't share that skepticism. I mean, the, the thing is, China, uh, China has always been unwilling to uh you know it's been it's, its whole policy since the 80s has been kind of keep keep your head down and build up build up your strength until such time as as you're you're able to you know to do anything effective without getting just completely destroyed for doing so um we could argue of course that there's more that could have been done um to push back as you say um but i don't know it's it's it's, it's difficult and i i'm always reluctant to uh to you know, make <clears throat> make demands of of a you know a country that at the end of the day it's got over a billion miles to feed every every day. It does that very successfully. It's got its strategy. Its strategy is working on its own terms. Um, the fact that it hasn't been able to do as much as we would like in terms of uh, on terms of resisting the the, the, the maneuverings of the empire every, every in every continent um, I don't think should detract from the fact uh, that you know that, that this is it is strategy in its own terms it is build it is building up there is a desperation on the part of the empire it, the, it, the empire is unable to um, prevent uh, countries for example like Nigeria increasingly uh, conducting for example their oil trade more of it in in, in the yuan or Keeping more of their reserves uh, in yuan, and and uh, you know th- this is part of the reason we're seeing these proxy wars break out is because of this desperation oh, yeah, on the part absolutely. of empire to to, to 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 reverse this trajectory. So I still think that the overall 
uh, trajectory is on the side of, of, of the global south. And we're seeing desperate pushbacks and so on. Even in Venezuela, you know, don't think, uh, and, and in, uh, in Brazil, you know, those, the, 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 the masses have not been defeated in those, these countries with the, the coup regime in, in Brazil. It's not the final word in how this thing is going to play out. So, um, oh yes, no, no doubt. Yeah. I, I don't want any misunderstanding about what I'm saying. I'm not bashing China for not stopping the U.S. at every turn. Mm-hmm. I'm merely pointing mm-hmm. out that there was a feeling among a lot of people that not China, but BRICS as a whole, that the mm-hmm. Shanghai Cooperation Organization as a whole, that the Russians and the Chinese marching together in Red Square to celebrate the 70th anniversary of Victory Day, mm-hmm. you know, that these things signaled that it it wasn't just China and Russia reemerging on the world stage, but rather an entire grouping of global South countries that were really increasingly becoming independent and assertive, and that Russia mm. and China really formed the engine of that. And mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. what I think is uh, uh, really needs to be reevaluated because I mm. think that that may have been a slightly, uh, let's say overly optimistic way of viewing how global politics has shaped out. Certainly the Chinese uh, have done a tremendous amount in Africa to undermine the United States. Certainly the One Belt, One Road, all of the other pushbacks against the U.S. and the South China Sea, many other examples of where China is pushing back against uh, the United States. But China was supposed to be kind of the bedrock of a larger global South uh, ascendance. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that we're seeing that. And that's something that I think really uh, needs to be discussed on the left a little bit more. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. But I, I think that, that it, it does largely boil down to um, yeah, Russia's uh, vacillation, really. It hasn't, is, is it on the side of the global south or, or is its alliances with the global south something that are up for negotiation at the right price? And, and, and this is, I would still say it's unclear. But unfortunately, it's uh, it's certainly not a given that this is uh, that it sees itself as a as a long term permanent um, partner in some kind of uh, global global pushback. Well, that's, and Dan, that's and Dan, increasingly to, not not seeming to be the case. And to your point, Dan, I just to kind of put an example for people to understand what you're getting at. Russia, uh, take a look at Russia's conduct vis-a-vis Libya and Russia's conduct vis-a-vis Syria. In, in Syria, Russia presented itself as a defender of the global south, a defender of a country targeted by imperialism, a defender of a, uh, of a legitimate government against a uh, foreign-backed insurgency, however you want to describe it. And in Libya, Russia voted in favor of Resolution 1973, supporting the U.S. and NATO's bombing of Libya, essentially. They didn't vote in favor. It's abstained. But the point it is did the not same. Veto. Let, me re- let me rephrase yeah, that. Yeah, it did yeah. not veto yeah, Resolution absolutely. 1973, whereas it did veto resolutions in Syria. This is so part of this sort of vacillation, I think, that you're referring mm. to. Sometimes Russia can be seen as an ally of countries targeted by imperialism. Sometimes Russia's on the side of imperialism. Where this will well, go this- in the future is the question. Well, if we, we can see from history, though, that this never ends well for Russia. Well, that's precisely right, and this is why I can't understand why they're even why they're even uh, uh, contemplating this, uh, you know, kind of alliance with with, uh, uh, with, with Trump. Because if you go back to 1991, Gorbachev did not, just as Medvedev in in in, uh, uh, in 2011 didn't veto uh, at the UN the war in Libya. So in 1991, Gorbachev didn't use the Soviet veto uh, against the 
uh, attack on Iraq. Why? Because he was hoping for some kind of cooperation with the West, collaboration, some kind of a good deal with them, um, and, uh, and and recognition of their positions. And he'd got this, uh, this what he thought was this commitment that NATO would not move an inch to the to the east and so on and so forth and how did that end for 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 russia well nato's right up on the on on russia's borders and they were delivered a, a western imposed economic um meltdown unprecedented in 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 peacetime resulted in a collapse of russian life expectancy and, and yet the same thing happened in 2011 when when uh russia as you say that did not use their veto basically acquiesced to the to the war against libya um, and again, hoping, you know, Obama was, was doing exact same as Trump, actually. Remember, he came in 2008, this reset, we'll reset our relations with Russia, we want good relations, cooperation. So, okay, buying, buying into that, Medvedev says, okay, we won't interfere in your war in Libya. And what do they get out of it? They get a fascist coup in Ukraine on their, on their doorstep. They get massive sanctions. So this never ends well for Russia. They never get the deal they're hoping. They never get the cooperation collaboration uh and and they need they need to realize that pretty you know pretty soonish before they uh you know allow the u.s because already we've got a u.s ground occupation in syria we've had direct targeting of of, of government pro-government forces and government bases and so on how, how much more ground are they going to cede before they realize this is going to play out no different to 91 or 2011 this is going to blow up in their face if they are to if they're going to allow uh any kind of hostility or aggression towards iran in the hope that the that there's you know they're going to be rewarded in the future, they they don't they don't need to look at ancient history. They just need to look at the last few years to see how this is going to play out for them. Well, and there's also a short-sighted uh, uh, capitalist motivation in all of this. The Russians see the Iranians as not entirely friends because Iran really holds a major card in all of this, namely gas exports to Europe. And Russia is, is certainly concerned that Iran in the post-P5 plus one environment could become a major supplier of gas to Europe. And Russia wants to do everything they can to undermine that potential future. Mm. Well, it's really interesting with what's happening with Qatar now, isn't it? There's a growing consensus that what this is really about is punishing Qatar for having, having links with uh, Iran. Um, Qatar's uh, self-imposed 12-year moratorium on developing its joint gas field with Iran just ended last April. There's fear Iran already sells its uh, uh, sells its um, oil in in the yuan or in the dollar since 2012 to, to to China. This is a real threat to the petrodollar and to the to the status of the uh, of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Now, if they're thinking of Qatar and Iran are going to go into business together. And and sell within the biggest natural gas field in the world, and start selling that in in, in Chinese currency. That could be the end of of, of the petrodollar. So, uh, I I think this is a big part. Of course, the Saudis have their own gripes with Qatar. They sponsor rival different proxy forces and so on that are vying for influence. And of course, Egypt has their issues with Qatar's support for the Muslim Brotherhood and. So does Libya, but the, the the point, the whole point of Saudi Arabia, why it's created by the British Empire in the first place, is that it's that the, the West has a veto on its foreign policy. This would not happen without the say so uh, of of Western imperialism. And, and Trump's uh, visit, you know, was was perceived as a kind of green light for 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 basically 
having a pop at anyone who wasn't down with isolating Iran. So, okay, Qatar's got its relations. It's about to develop this, this giant gas field. Um, so this, this, this was at the behest, I believe, of, of, of the empire. Uh, and it was in relation to shoring up the, 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 the status of the petrodollar, the world's leading currency. Now, the, so the issue then is, well, what's, what's Russia doing and saying about all of this? Now, it's interesting that Russia has hosted the, um, I think the Qatari foreign minister, if, if I'm not mistaken, recently. That's interesting. But I'm, again, I'm, you know, I hope Russia, uh, uh, solidly, uh, resist this, r- resist this move, but, but as you say, the Saudis, the Egyptians, they're increasingly close with, with, with Russia. Is this yet another example of, of Russia giving basically the green light to, to empire to, to, for, for its hostilities towards Iran? I hope not. I hope not. Well, I, I think that there's a number... There's a number of things to, to certainly be paying attention to, including uh, that all of this is happening while ExxonMobil is quite literally in charge of the U.S. State Department with Rex Tillerson, mm. who has long ties to, to, to Russian oil and gas interests. They, they both see tremendous worry, both in Iran coming online in the global energy markets and increasingly with China's assertive moves in the South China Sea, which is one of the great untapped gas reserves in the world. Uh, also, we're mm-hmm. seeing moves in the Arctic. There's a number of places globally where the Russians, I think, are seeing that some of these countries that they have uh, in various ways allied with for, you know, for uh, convenience purposes are increasingly becoming geopolitical foes. And so the shifting uh, landscape of global politics, I think, is something that our analysis really needs to catch up to. What will Russia do? How will Iran evolve as a gas expert? border. How will China move in the South China Sea? That has obvious implications for these long-term energy deals that Russia and China have signed in the last few years. Does this mean that the Mm -hmm. Russia-China relationship isn't as cozy as we might have thought it was in 2015? A lot of open questions, I would say. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. So, right. uh, so, all right, well, we're way over the time. We're going to have to leave it there. A lot, <laughs> a lot more to, a lot more to say, uh, again, uh, Dan Glazebrook's article, 21st century fascism in the current issue of counterpunch magazine. Do get yourself a copy of that. Uh, get in touch with Dan on social media, follow his work. I think his analysis is always top notch. Uh, so with that, Dan Glazebrook, thanks so much for coming on counterpunch radio. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Listeners. Thank you as always for listening. Speak to you again real soon.